This is a Vault Studios production. Tex McGarvey did not murder his wife. He had absolutely no reason to murder his wife. Despite what friends like Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills are saying about Tex McIver and what happened in the back of an SUV in September of 2016, Tex McIver is now facing malice murder and felony murder charges. You know, you're fighting for your life, aren't you? Because you know you're innocent. And I guess really you're not really in your right headspace. You're probably clutching at straw. Probably so, yeah. I mean, none of us would know unless it happened to us. Attorneys on both sides are gearing up for a battle. There will be months of hearings and motions and court appearances. And eventually, as high profile as this case is turning out to be, there's real concern that the Tex McIver trial will have to be moved out of Fulton County, Georgia. The defense lays out their argument that Tex McIver says the gun went off accidentally, and we heard potential juror after potential juror say, no way that could have happened. I'm Caitlin Ross. This is Intent, the Tex McIver case, Chapter 4. Tex McIver was indicted on murder charges in April of 2017. Just over a month later, as Tex is seeking a new bond, Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard issues a subpoena for the sizable collection of firearms Tex kept at his ranch. The subpoena covers 10 handguns and 25 long guns, three of which are merely decorative, taken from McIver's Lake Oconee home, according to Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills. To courtroom observers, the subpoena is an eye-opener. After Diane's death, Tex had asked his friend, Howard Sills, the local sheriff, to hold on to the collection for him. Looking back on the subpoena, Sills calls it grandstanding. Uh, Well, first of all, most men in Georgia have guns. Uh, The rural areas, uh, the number of guns usually equate with the amount of wealth you have, okay? And, uh, but when Tex was put under a bond condition of that he couldn't possess any firearms, uh, he called me and said, well, can't I just lock them up in the safe? And I said, no, you can't. Possess means you can't possess, possess period. And uh, so I stupidly, you know, volunteered to, to just put them here in the evidence room with the sheriff's office. That's how I acquired them. The only gun that was evidence in this case was the gun that killed Diane. And bringing in a bunch of other guns, uh, I don't see much difference in that. Although the subpoena requires Sheriff Sills to bring the guns to court tomorrow, Sills tells me that the judge in the case has temporarily halted the subpoena, so there will be no courtroom display of 35 guns tomorrow, but it will get argued along with plenty else as the 74-year-old attorney and accused killer tries to make bond. Texas bond hearing moves forward without the collection of firearms on display. And prosecutors accuse Tex of trying to use his connections to make his life easier, to generally rig the system in his favor. They claim McIver should remain in jail because he's continuing to try to influence witnesses in the case. 
Tex listens as both sides present their arguments. First, his lawyer. And in this case, where there is, there is no evidence of intent to take a human life, if anyone is entitled to bond, it surely is Mr. MacGyver. And then District Attorney Paul Howard. And he is very well connected. And if you listen to him, he's got the financial resources to kind of reach out to folks, uh, either directly or now, we know, indirectly, to people who he believes can have an influence on what happens to him in this process. Texas lawyers rebuff those claims, offering another interpretation of their client's communications from behind bars. Uh, the, the reasonable interpretation is you got an individual who's frustrated about being in jail and wants to get out, and he's complaining to his friends. But it appears Tex MacGyver isn't going to get out of jail anytime soon. Judge Robert McBurney says that MacGyver could be a threat to himself or others if he's released on bond. The trial date is set for the following October, and Tex stays locked up. Texas neighbor Andrew Ward remembers visiting his old friend behind bars. And I went to sit in front of him and there was a big plastic perspex screen between the two of us and we had to put these headphones on and chat. And I looked at him and I, I thought how aged he'd become, how gaunt and, and white his flesh had become. And he sat there and he started telling me, oh, I'm helping, I'm helping some of the inmates read. Some of them can't read, Andrew. So I'm teaching him. And it was all about what he was doing for everybody else that was in this area around him. Texas soon transferred from the Fulton County Jail to another facility in the Atlanta suburb of Alpharetta. Prosecutors ask he be returned to the Fulton County Jail, calling the transfer special treatment. They go on to say that's not the only special treatment he's been getting, specifically pointing to unsupervised phone calls. Texas attorney William Hill fires back, saying there's no evidence Tex has done anything wrong. It's a battle the prosecution loses when the judge decides Tex will remain at the Alpharetta jail facility. And this story is curious to me. Anybody else who was accused of such a crime as is Tex McIver, we wouldn't be hearing a peep from him. Now we're seeing all of this jockeying between two sides trying to figure out which jail he should be in. Why is that at issue? Right, you know, Jeff, this is the craziest case and we all wanna watch and stay tuned and it shouldn't be an issue, but arguably the sheriff has the constitutional authority and requirement to run the jails and to follow their procedure to make sure that inmates are safe and protected. And I don't know why they've moved him. Is there an argument that maybe they felt like for his safety he needed to be moved? Maybe. And then the issue of maybe he's making phone calls to intimidate witnesses. How are you not keeping an eye and an ear on this guy if you're running a jail and he's one of your inmates? Right, that's a very valid question. They'd have to look at the evidence to know. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is all of the technology and ability to record all of the conversations is different jail to jail. And so it may be in Fulton County Jail that capability exists and maybe it doesn't in Alpharetta. Is this an example of having money and influence means that you get different treatment? You know, I don't know. That's what some people might argue and it's hard to know. (laughs) I might. (laughs) Depending on what side I was in, I absolutely might. In August, Tex McIver is back in court. And this time, the question of a secret second will, a potential focal point of the prosecution's case, is at the forefront. 
this business of Diane's will, which was one of the, as I understand it, one of the prime motives uh, as expressed by the prosecution, was that uh, she changed her will. And unless I'm wrong, there was no will. And uh, if I can talk to a jury about evidence that I don't have, I got news for you. I can convict anybody of anything. The prosecution claims the will could be sitting in boxes of evidence that have gone unexamined for months. Unexamined because the defense claims it's all been obtained illegally. At the same time, McIver's attorneys file an emergency motion for Tex to be let out of jail, this time saying McIver's mother is sick and he should be released in order to be with her. The motion is denied and Tex stays behind bars. But then in October, more than a year after Diane McIver's death, it looks like the much-anticipated trial could be delayed when prosecutors say they need more time to go through all of the evidence. The defense, for their part, says it will agree to a delay if Tex can get out of jail. And there's a lot of evidence, evidence that both sides are struggling to find enough time to analyze before the trial. Imagine digging through 90,000 emails to find something that might make or break a murder case. Prosecutors asked for the emails from Corey Enterprises, the business led by Tex MacGyver's wife, Diane. At some point in time in preparation for trial, even if we've got to go get some interns or somebody, we're going to try to go through these emails. Defense attorneys say the new email evidence will take time. To be able to get through all this is going to be several months from now. Some and of that's which no one has. Because exactly. it's in boxes and no I've one's never seen to... the 35 boxes that you have. Plus, they also have computers. have no idea what's on it. Eventually, the judge rules that the trial will be delayed until March of the next year, giving both sides more time to prepare. And Tex MacGyver will get another shot at being released on bond. We are still waiting for Tex MacGyver to get out of jail as he waits for the murder trial against him to start. MacGyver was granted $750,000 bond, and we are waiting for him to be released. In December of 2017, Tex MacGyver posts bond and walks out of jail. Reporters are waiting. Oh, good evening, sir. How does it feel to be out? He feels great to be out. We're going home. Tex doesn't say much. Be out for the holidays, sir? In March of 2018, as Tex McIver's new trial date approaches, attorneys are still battling over evidence, the possibility of a second will, and what the jury can and cannot see. At a pretrial hearing, I learn this will not be a short trial when prosecutors state they plan to call nearly 100 witnesses to testify. Former prosecutor and Court TV lead anchor Vinnie Politan. There are a lot of different levels to this trial, and all of it made the case more and more interesting and drew um, people from, from around the globe who started following this. Locally, it was bigger than big. Um, but then once people started hearing some of the backstory here, because you're talking about allegations of Tex MacGyver, grabbing that gun because he was a racist and he was scared of BLM. It's, it's, a, it's a love story um, 
But was there more to this story uh, about love and, and, and money and jealousy and, and spite in this relationship? Ahead of jury selection, Fulton County Superior Court Chief Judge Robert McBurney makes two important rulings that will impact what prosecutors and defense attorneys can present as evidence in the case. The prosecution will be able to talk about the estate sale that Tex had following Diane's death, where he sold off Diane's furs, clothes, and jewelry for tens of thousands of dollars. The judge says evidence related to the sale could speak to Tex's state of mind and rules it would be admissible. Judge McBurney also rules that the statements made by Tex McIver's spokesperson, statements that Tex was scared of Black Lives Matter protests going on in Atlanta at the time of the shooting, will be allowed as evidence in the case. Jury selection begins in Tex McIver's murder trial. You'll remember he's the high-powered Atlanta attorney. But as jury selection gets underway, it's clear there could be a major obstacle even before testimony begins. Tonight, though, there is talk this trial may need to be moved out of Fulton County. That's because of some fresh concerns. They won't find an impartial jury. During the first morning of jury selection alone, eight potential jurors are dismissed, most of them saying they just can't buy the defense's argument that the gun went off accidentally. We're hearing this not from folks who are concealed carry people. We're hearing it from folks who um, say guns don't just randomly go off. Um, We'd have even more deaths from gunshots if if they randomly went off. I am a um, NRA certified basic rifle and pistol instructor. I think the handling of the firearm is, is would be was very, very careless. I want to use the term idiotic. It's a lot of people that's on the streets now. A lot of guys that drive cars that's considered a drug dealer, they carry their guns every day. And not, not a single false shot has one out. Vinnie Politan asks 11 Alive legal experts Latonia Hines and Daryl Cohen about the issue of a gun accidentally firing. Is the gun went off accidentally a plausible defense for Tex MacGyver? Absolutely. Without a doubt. It's a plausible Defense. Is it really possible? Does a real gun owner believe that his or her gun is going to go off accidentally? The answer is no. Gun owners on this jury, is it better for the prosecution or better for the defense? It's a, kind of a hard question. I think it's That's a, why I asked yes, it. Yes, I know. And that's the reason why I think as a prosecutor, you may want a gun owner on that. Somebody who's a responsible gun owner. As a prosecutor, you want nothing but gun owners, people who know about guns. But the question of whether a gun could just accidentally go off isn't the only issue weighing on the minds of potential jurors. The doctor asked his wife if she wanted to see him in the hospital, and she said no. And um, that really struck a chord with me because I think personally, if I were in that situation, I would be begging to see my husband. So I've formed an opinion that, you know, it's, it sounds guilty to me. Members of the jury pool are also questioned by attorneys about the auction held not long after Diane's death. But your first thought was, boy, in combination with everything else I know, that sounds, um, I'm going to use the word suspicious to me. Is that right? The jury selection process also gives my colleagues and me a glimpse of what we're going to see in the coming weeks. Not just some of the arguments on both sides, but big-name lawyers battling it out in a high-profile case.
the characters involved in this trial, um, incredibly colorful. And, and, and you, you start with the attorneys involved. The prosecutor, Clint Rucker, this guy, legendary. Whenever there was a big case in Fulton County, um, the DA knew who we had to tap to try that case. And, and it would be Clint Rucker. Sometimes, you know, attorneys, they'll ask questions. But when he speaks, it's like all eyes are on him. And he just fills the room with that big, big voice and personality. It's amazing to watch. Then on the defense side, you've got Bruce Harvey, a legend with that long ponytail and the gray hair pulled back. He's tried cases for years and years. You get in trouble, you've got enough money, you get Bruce Harvey. That's who you get. And, and, and if he's not available, or if he is available and you want to make the team even stronger, you get Don Samuel. I mean, these two defense attorneys are the ones, they're the, the go-to guys. So between their personalities and the fact that these lawyers have gone at it before, you know, it's not the first time they've had a showdown inside the courtroom. And uh, it was amazing to watch. After all of the wrangling, a jury is finally selected. Six men, six women. You have uh, nine white jurors, three African-Americans. That's the breakdown. Of I settle into the next six weeks of my life, reporting every day on the Tex McIver murder trial. Caitlin Ross is outside the courthouse in downtown Atlanta. And Caitlin, the judge fought it out to get this jury seated after so many potential jurors said they'd already made up their minds about this case. Yeah, this was a really tough one to see at the jury. It took them a very long time, and both the prosecution and defense were incredibly thorough. Here's the jury that's now been seated. There are six men and six women. It's a real mix of careers and geographic areas. They come from all over Fulton County. There's a stay-at-home mom in the mix, a teacher married with kids, a CFO of a company, and a cruise line saleswoman. On March 13th, 2018, opening statements in the Tex McIver trial get underway. This is either a story of a calculated murder or a terrible accident, and it's the top story you have been following in Atlanta today. Judge Robert McBurney welcomes the jurors and gives them a preview of some of the evidence they'll be hearing about and seeing. May come to pass during the opening um, or during the course of the trial that there'll be actual real guns in the courtroom. They cannot get into the courtroom unless they've been secured by law enforcement and there is no ammunition in the gun. As expected, this trial is going to be about guns, money, and the McIver's marriage. Now, this is a case about maintaining an image of wealth and power that the defendant created for himself and the lengths that he went through to keep it. Fulton County Chief Senior Assistant District Attorney Salita Griffin delivers the opening statement for the prosecution. The MacGyvers had the storybook life. And you'll hear from witnesses that they never argued, that they never saw them argue, that they thought that everything was okay. But things weren't as they seemed. And on September 25th, 2016, the day that the defendant shot his wife in the back, his life was spinning out of control. According to the prosecution, as Texas' life was spinning out of control and his salary was declining year after year, he was relying more and more on his wife Diane to maintain his lifestyle, specifically the ongoing care and upkeep of his beloved ranch in the country. On Diane's death, 
He went from negative $5,000 to over $1.1 million cash instantly. And he was the executor and one of the beneficiaries of Diane's $7 million estate. The easiest way for him to gain control was to kill Diane. And on Sunday, September 25th, 2016, the evidence will show that that is just what he did. Griffin goes on, outlining the events of the night Diane died and the scene at the hospital as Danny Joe Carter pulled up to the Emory emergency room entrance. And ladies and gentlemen, somehow the defendant wants you to believe that the, mur- that the death of Diane MacGyver was an accident. But ladies and gentlemen, this was no accident at all. And the evidence will show that this was indeed murder. All the events on September 25th, 2016 by the defendant were planned, intentional, and calculated. Then Griffin previews the evidence they plan to present about Texas' changing story the night of Diane's death. While the defendant was telling all of these stories and trying to change the narrative of what really happened, he had one big problem, and that was Danny Joe Carter. And the evidence is going to show that after they arrived at Emory, what he did was he told Danny Joe, you know, these situations can get a little bit crazy. So why don't you tell the police that you were not in the SUV tonight and that you just arrived at the hospital sometime later? And Danny Joe told him, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to say that because that's not true. Amanda Clark Palmer then stands before the jury and delivers the opening statement for the defense. Um, We just spent, I think, maybe 30 or 40 minutes listening to the state tell you all their theories and their reasons why they think Mr. McIver intentionally shot Diane McIver. And I want to tell you that you can just set all of that aside. There's really one thing that you need to know about Tex McIver and Diane McIver to know that he did not intentionally shoot his wife, and that is that he loved her, truly loved her, deeply loved her, and she loved him back. She then walks jurors through the night of Diane's shooting and the scene in the SUV and then at the hospital. And as the state told you, um, she's treated by Dr. Suzanne Hardy. Um, It takes some time. They try to get her stabilized. She regains consciousness when she's there. Um, Nobody is going to come in here and tell you what Mrs. Mrs. McIver was thinking at that time. Nobody is going to be able to tell you why she said what she said. But what she says to Dr. Hardy... um, without any prompting, is it was an accident. The defense also responds to the prosecution's claim that Tex told Danny Joe Carter to tell a different story about what happened the night of Diane's death. But on September 26th, I think the evidence is going to show that she is specifically asked by Detective Smith, did you and Tex have a conversation about what to tell the police or what not to tell the police? He's giving her an opening. He wants to know. She says... Tex said he hated for me to be drugged into this mess. 
She doesn't say anything about text telling her to lie or text telling her that she's a family friend. When she's interviewed again on September 27th, she doesn't say, hey, by the way, I forgot to tell you something yesterday. Actually, text told me, you know, I, I needed to lie to you all. She doesn't tell her husband that text told her to lie. Um, Tom Carter says that Danny Joe said, text said, I hate to see you caught up in this, which is consistent with what she told the police on September 26. She then brings up a documented history of a sleep disorder that can cause Tex to jerk and twitch while he's sleeping and even wake up disoriented. And then the defense wraps up, again stating the shooting was an accident, not murder. The evidence is going to show to you, ladies and gentlemen, that Tex loved Diane and Diane loved Tex, that she was his best friend and that he would not intentionally kill her. He did not intentionally kill her. He did not murder her, and he is not guilty. Thank you. The prosecution then begins calling witnesses. Among those testifying on that first day, Roger Quillen, the chairman and managing partner at Fisher Phillips, the law firm where Tex worked for decades. He's asked in detail about Tex's status and declining salary at the law firm, the firm's communication with Tex about plans to retire, and then their conversations with Tex following Diane's death. Fulton County's Executive Assistant District Attorney Clint Rucker is asking the questions for the prosecution. Were there conversations with the defendant about retiring from the firm? Uh, there were. Uh, those conversations have been going on for, I, don't, I can't say how long, but certainly more than a year before 2016. Quillen goes on to testify about a conversation with Tex following Diane's death in September of 2016, including a suggestion that Tex wind down his role as senior counsel at the firm at the end of 2016. Quillen then reads an email exchange the firm had with Tex following those retirement conversations. We have decided not to offer any monetary incentive for you to refer work to the firm. Because we want your retirement to be a clean break, not only in reality, but also in the way people inside and outside the firm view it, we think it would be inconsistent to have you marketing on behalf of the firm, and we don't encourage you to do that. Rucker follows up, confirming the firm's intention to end Texas senior counsel role at Fisher Phillips. And so um, with that um, statement, that you don't want the defendant to be marketing on behalf of the firm and don't encourage you to do it, this notion of a senior counsel status in your mind was what? Off the table. Off the On day two of testimony, the prosecution moves from Texas employment and retirement at Fisher Phillips to Diane's employer, U.S. Enterprises. Several employees take the stand, including Terry Brown, an executive assistant at the company since 2010, who had supported Diane in her professional and personal life. Brown testifies about something Tex told him not long after Diane's death. Huge moment inside the courtroom today. Tex MacGyver shot and killed his wife. He says it was an accident, but a week before his wife's memorial, he was talking about pursuing his dead wife's friend who he dated back in the 90s. It was a couple days before her memorial service, which was the end of October. All he said was he didn't think she was happy with her husband, who was less, and that maybe he could get her back. Maybe he could get who back? Janie. 
Brown also testifies that Tex talked about selling the couple's Buckhead condo in the days after his wife had been shot and killed. Tex had asked us what we thought it would cost to put that condo back as a condo if he went to put them on the market. And this was less than 24 hours after Ms. McGyver. It was either, I went Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, it was one of those three nights. The prosecution continues pounding away on the topic of the McGyver's finances, asserting that Tex was disappointed his wife didn't have more money in her bank account. That's backed up by testimony from Terry Brown, who says he felt like it was his duty to tell Tex about everything Diane had going on in her life. It's what my job was, and that's how I saw it. It was very important to me to finish. I'm sorry. I didn't think it would be this hard. It's been too long. Okay. So that's why. It was important to me to finish her life. The prosecution then calls Tanner McKinney to the stand. Tanner's girlfriend, Samantha Watson, boarded her horse at the McIver's ranch, and spent a lot of Sunday afternoons riding horses there. That Sunday, they were planning to ride with Danny Joe Carter. But before they did, Tanner says Tex asked him a question. Yeah, he had, um, he had asked me if I could take Danny Joe um, back home, and we couldn't. Uh, they shoot us in Atlanta and we were in Athens. And so I just said, you know, I know we can. And he's like, oh, yeah. Um, you know, now, can you tell the jurors... Um, had you ever been to Danny Joe's house before in Atlanta? No, I hadn't. Um, when he said that to you, did you even know where Danny Joe lived? No. Um, in the three or so years before, uh, while you had been coming to the ranch, had um, Mr. MacGyver ever asked you to take Danny Joe home? Um, no. And when Mr. MacGyver asked you if you could take Danny Joe home, give her a ride, uh, what did you tell him? Um, I just kind of hesitated for a second because, you know, it was one of those things that kind of threw me off a little bit because I didn't know. And then um, I said, well, we live in Athens, and I don't remember his exact response, but he did not uh, ask me to continue. Um, I mean, he may not have even thought of the fact that he lived in Athens. I'm not really sure why he asked You don't know why he asked that? Tanner mentioned the conversation to his girlfriend, Samantha, Neither of them mentioned it to Danny Joe. The following day, the prosecution continues to build its case as jurors watch video again and again of the final moments of Diane McIver's life caught on surveillance camera as she arrived at Emory Hospital. The jurors are instructed to pay attention not to Diane, but to Tex, what he was doing and how he was acting outside the hospital. The prosecution describes Tex as being too relaxed, without a sense of urgency. But the defense suggests the video doesn't let the jurors hear Tex yelling, gunshot, gunshot, someone help me, as his voice gets louder and louder. The prosecution begins calling hospital staff members to the stand, and the defense asks one of the nurses to describe what she saw that night. You see him walking up alongside the car as it's still moving. Yes. Coming up to the emergency room entrance, correct? I see him walking up towards the vehicle, yes. Right. He's not leisurely walking up to the ER while the car's parked, correct? He's not rushing, but he's walking, yes. Right. But then it's what happened inside the hospital that becomes the focus as nurses and doctors rush to Diane's side. Did she gain consciousness? Yes. 
And do you remember what the first thing she said? She was groaning and she said, oh, oh, this hurts. Did she say anything else? Um, she said, I'm dying, aren't I? Ms. McIver trying to speak to you. Is she able to speak to you? She was starting to ask questions. Um, she asked me if she was going to die. Was that all the questions that she asked you? Uh, yeah, she just asked me. She looked at me um, and said, am I going to die? That same nurse testifies about her interactions with Tex McIver. I started questioning him. I, I leaned in in kind of a comforting manner um, and said, what happened? What, what's going on? And he said to me, uh, it was an accident. I was, I had the gun in the back seat and it just went off. Throughout the day, nurses would be asked to share what they saw and experienced the night Diane McIver was rushed in. One nurse describes Tex as red-faced and confused. Another says she smelled alcohol on his breath. A third nurse says she had to ask Tex to help her get his wife out of the SUV and into the wheelchair before bringing her inside. On day four of the trial, there's testimony about Tex's conversation that night in a hospital hallway. Several members of the hospital staff testified they'd seen Tex McIver with several people, including a close friend and lawyer, and someone who appeared to be taking notes on a legal pad. I had the impression that there was a plan being enacted. They were actually um, kind of huddling, like you would think of a sports team, literally holding on to each other in a small circle. Like football huddle? Yes. And the way this played out in, in the courtroom is that Tex is already concerned about his own situation rather than Diane's situation where she's been shot and but he's the one with who was holding the gun and he's worried about you know am i going to get in trouble for this ER doctor Suzanne Hardy then testifies that Diane McIver was coherent and answering questions when she was brought in prosecutors ask what Diane told her when asked if she wanted texts by her side and um and she appeared to be coherent when she said no correct yes. In their cross-examination of Dr. Hardy, the defense asks how Diane described what happened to her. She said it was an accident. She wasn't under any duress when she said No. You didn't try to steer her one direction or another to get her to say something. No. In her coherent state, she said it was an accident. Yes. It's only been one week, four days of testimony, and the jury has seen and heard a lot. The McIvers' finances, their marriage, the scene at the hospital, Tex's reaction or lack of reaction, Diane's request for Tex to not be by her side. But there's only one person who was actually in the SUV when Diane was shot, and she's preparing to testify. Next time on Intent, the Tex McIver case. Can you say to the jurors whether or not um, you um, hit a bump? No, we did not. Intent, the Tex McIver case, is a co-production of Vault Studios and 11 Alive WXIA News in Atlanta. Will Johnson and Brian Weiss are executive producers with Vault Studios. Reed Redman produces, researches, and edits the podcast. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. You can find me on Facebook at Caitlin Ross 11 Alive or on Twitter at Caitlin Ross One.